0: From Miami Law, I'm Annette Ugez, and this is The Explainer.
1: People know what the wrong thing is, they just do it anyway.
0: Welcome to a bonus episode of The Explainer, the legal affairs show where we sit down with experts to unpack the headlines. Today on our show, we take a deep dive into compliance. 2018 saw a surfeit of shady business practices, allegations of financial misconduct, and widespread money laundering schemes. Facebook was the poster child for data privacy and data security fails. Tesla's Elon Musk got into the weeds using false and misleading investment information on social media, while Wells Fargo suffered the slings and arrows from secretly opening 3.5 million unauthorized deposit and credit card accounts, and Denmark's largest bank allegedly took part in a $227 billion money laundering scandal. With us to look at the brave new world challenging compliance leaders is Miami Law's own expert, Marcia Weldon, whose teaching and research interests include corporate governance and social responsibility. Weldon is launching a compliance podcast this summer with Compliance Rising star AP Capaldo Aon called The Integrity Factor on Tom Fox's Compliance Network. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview.
2: Good morning, Marcia. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so compliance, maybe we should start by um, giving our listeners a, just a quick, what is compliance? What does it mean? Why do we care? Right. So if you're a compliance officer, this consumes your life. And I'm not going to
1: talk about any of the legalistic things that that compliance officers think about. So let's break it down a little bit. If you work for a company you may have to take training on sexual harassment, on safety, the kinds of subjects that specifically rates let you do for a living. And that training is meant to teach you about the legal requirements so your company doesn't get in trouble right. um, and to avoid fines and penalties. But compliance is really more about building an ethical culture. When we look at some of the biggest compliance failures that have happened in the news lately, whether it's data breaches with Facebook or Operation Varsity Blues with the college admission scandal... Bribery in college athletics, CEOs and people in Congress are getting kicked out because of Me Too. All of that happens with people who knew what the rules were. They knew the difference between right and wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the question is why they choose to do the wrong thing anyway. And that's what compliance uh, officers and professionals really struggle with. So I don't just think about it as telling people what the rules are. You have to get to the why they choose not to follow the rules. How do you get them on the same page when it comes to the values? And how do you even set those values?
2: Right. Um, so maybe we should talk about some of the, the most pressing issues in compliance today. Like, is it ransomware? Is it cybersecurity? Is it? It could be any of those things, any, (laughs) any all all those things.
1: Compliance pretty much touches every single thing that people deal with, even if they don't really realize it. Um, and, and where you're finding the compliance issues, it, again, it really goes back to people know what the wrong thing is. They just do it anyway. So, you know, you think of the 10 commandments, for example no matter how religious or spiritual, you've heard of most of them, but people still lie. They covet their neighbor's wife. They, they steal, they kill, they do all the things, even though they know the right thing to do. Um, And just this week, the federal trade commission had to put out a statement telling lawyers that if they're not being honest in their communications, they're going to be barred from presenting things before the federal trade commission. And they've actually cited the canon of ethics. And you would think that lawyers, if anybody would know the difference between right and wrong, because we take we take classes at it in law school. And more importantly, we're supposed to be ethical. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at Wells Fargo, they had the major compliance failure with, with uh, bonuses and the pressure to make bonuses. And now the government has to sign off on their new CEO. So what we're finding is that the issues that are happening are typically happening because people break the rules or they find some loopholes. Um, you know, the Financial Times reported yesterday that of chief executives that were kicked out this year Mm -hmm. were because of ethical and moral failings.
2: Is this something that's happening more for some reason, or I I feel like with all of these things, with Wells Fargo, with Facebook, um, with Elon Musk, like it's critical mass, it's a tipping point, or maybe it's just being reported more. I think there's a heightened
1: awareness and there's more reporting of it, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, In the age of things like social media and tweets going out, people are aware of things much more quickly Mm -hmm. and people see things much more quickly and people are are feeling more comfortable coming forward and raising issues. Um, so I don't know that people are being more unethical. I think people are getting caught more people reporting it and there's, there's a lower tolerance, uh, for, for, uh, compliance and ethical failures. Mm
2: -hmm. Any political ramifications since we seem to have a uh, a chief executive for our country that maybe is not so compliant?
1: You know, uh, I won't make any political statements, but I will say that uh, the... But uh,
2: is any of the well, I, of I, the heightened awareness... I, I think it actually makes result.
1: it very difficult. Um, the former uh, compliance consultant for the Department of Justice uh, made a statement, and I don't want to quote it incorrectly, but she was saying, you know, we really can't expect... Uh, people, if we expect people in companies to have high ethical moral standards and people in our government have to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even, and with this president, you know, the ethics advisors for the government have called out certain things that were in their view inappropriate. So when you look at, and this is a problem for compliance people, correct? Because you on the on one hand are saying, don't do this, don't do this, be truthful, don't have any conflict of interest, et cetera. And then there are people in government who aren't modeling that kind of behavior. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that compliance professionals tell people is that you've got to focus on the tone at the top. What's the CEO doing? And then increasingly the mood at the middle, because really your CEO can say anything. But if your supervisor is sexually harassing everybody and stealing from petty cash, then you don't care what the CEO says. Right. So when we look at what people in government are doing, when we look at what captains of industry are doing, if they're not modeling the right behavior, then the random person in the office is not going to do it either. Right.
2: The Weinstein company. Correct. Correct. Had no compliance officer, I assume. Well, but let's go back to Enron. Enron had the best compliance
1: program there was. They had a fantastic code of conduct. Uh They had great whistleblower processes. What happened? People exploited loopholes and people didn't didn't care. Mm -hmm. Because when you're looking at profit and money, um, that often is going to 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 conquer all, mm-hmm. especially if you look at how people are compensated. If people are compensated and they have a bonus structure that's based on profitability, that's going to lead to certain kinds of behavior. Right. So what a lot of the the things Wells, that people, Fargo, Wells Fargo is exactly right. an example of that. Even Fannie Mae, uh, you know with the with the lending, their bonuses, even for people in an internal audit, mm-hmm. were related to profitability. And so there is an inherent conflict of interest when you look at something like that. right.
2: okay. Um, so is compliance like the burgeoning hot new career?
1: I think compliance has always been a hot career. I've I started in compliance in 2004. at mm-hmm. that time I was a deputy general counsel and a compliance officer. And back then it was defense companies and pharmaceuticals. Now everybody's getting involved in it right. because you've got to think about it in so many contexts. Uh, so in terms of a hot new career, it's becoming hotter. Mm-hmm. It's becoming hotter for law students and, and law school graduates. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, a situation where there's, you're always going to be able to find a job. Uh, and because there's so many different issues, whether it's environmental, we talked about data protection, data privacy. I was at a data, a global summit on privacy professionals two weeks ago. There were 4,000 people there. Uh, Margaret Atwood did the keynote speech talking about the oh, handmaid's tale about me, privacy, me. which uh-huh. was fantastic. But, but just privacy alone is a huge topic. Mm-hmm. You know, we have, for example, um, the European Union put out a, a, regulation last year called the GDPR, and which includes a number of things. And you could have a 4% of your turnover as a fine if you violate it and violate the rights of of EU residents. Mm -hmm. So the people that are listening, they might say, this doesn't matter to me. If you're a blogger and you have people's email address from the EU, you've got to comply with the GDPR. Now, Facebook has learned a very tough lesson because they just got a 50 million euro fine Mm -hmm. from the French privacy regulator, because not Facebook, I'm sorry, Google, Mm -hmm. Facebook is on the hook for other things, but, but, but Google got a 50 million Euro fine, Uh um, because of, of how they're dealing with transparency and those kinds of things. Mm. So, uh, between that, between California having uh, a privacy regulation that's going into effect next year, which is going to be extremely onerous for companies to deal with. Privacy is probably the hottest subsection of
2: compliance. Um, Speaking of uh, of your personal life, um, you've got a couple of interesting things coming up. Can you tell us a little about your new podcast and your uh, you're involved with a compliance uh, program here? Sure. Um, starting next
1: month uh, in June, I'll be co-hosting a compliance podcast called Integrity Factor with uh, Ana Paolo Capoldo Aoun, otherwise mm-hmm. known as AP. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she's a millennial compliance officer, and I guess I'm the... The old time old school compliance person because I've been in compliance for for uh, since 2004 uh-huh. um, and we're going to put a different spin on it. Uh, we're going to talk about key things that compliance officers care about. But we also want to make it accessible to lay people uh, and talk about the things that that lay people care about as well.
2: And then the compliance program that's coming up here?
1: Right. So I'm very excited about this. Uh, UM and the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland, which is well known for its executive programs, are joining together to put together a three day compliance conference. where We'll be talking about things like bribery and corruption uh, with uh, people who are outside lawyers, in-house counsel, former U.S. Uh, attorney for Southern District of Florida will be on that panel. We've got data analytics. How do companies use the data to develop compliance programs? Uh, we're going to have a one on sports and entertainment compliance. So if you think about the kinds of things that are, for example, how the Me Too movement has affected mm-hmm. sports and entertainment, how bribery scandals, admissions things, those kinds of mm-hmm. things, um, we'll be talking about the Latin American perspective, the EU perspective, the U.S. perspective, because the key is how do you manage compliance across borders? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of compliance conferences out there, but this one is really going to be focusing on a small executive group to, to have an interactive, really meaningful, meaty, substantive conversation about how do you deal with it? Like my former life when we were in 15 countries mm-hmm. and looking at the different rules, making sure that you're applying the laws in country as well as in the host country, while also keeping in mind cultural differences.
2: Sure. Fascinating. Um, are we ready as compliance officers, are are we ready for the next big technology shift?
1: Compliance officers are increasingly looking at technology for a number of reasons. And because the okay. most important commodity any company or any person has is data. Mm-hmm. That's the value. So how do you use the data that you're getting? We've been getting benchmarking studies, et cetera, but how do you use the data to, to drive different behaviors? How do you find things? For example, one of the things compliance officers have to deal with is due diligence and disclosure in their supply chains. So you have on a beautiful gold ring. From the time that that ring, the, the gold was mined in a river in Democratic Republic of Congo to the time it ended up in Tiffany's, how do we keep track of all that to make sure there was no child labor or slaves used in the manufacture of that ring? Technology is what's helping companies do that. And some things that uh, companies are particularly excited about is the use of blockchain um, as a, as a method of, Enhancing compliance because it looks at provenance from the time that uh, something starts, the time it gets there. In food safety, IBM has a, a food safety trust where Walmart is going to be using blockchain to comply with food regulations. So, for all their green leafy vegetables, every farmer has to use be part of the blockchain system so that they can track and trace if there is a salmonella outbreak or something else like that. So, can
2: you explain in the in the short form? What blockchain actually? I've written a couple of pieces about it, and I I couldn't really spit it out over a cup of coffee. I don't think
1: over a cup of coffee, I don't know that I could spit it out too. But let's try the most basic possible explanation of imagine that right now, let's use the the food trust example. Right now. The farmers have their ways of keeping records and all the way through the supply chain. It could go through 30 or 40 people in a supply chain. Everybody's keeping different sets of records. You might have a situation where somebody might alter records because they don't want somebody to know something's happened. Mm -hmm. Or people might erase records or it might be inaccurate or not up to date. On the blockchain, the records are all kept in a centralized place. So it's like
2: a Google Docs slash electronic ledger. So think about
1: the the simplest way be a massive Google Docs where Mm -hmm. everybody has real-time access to it. And if some changes are made, you'll know why this is helpful uh, for when I would talk about blockchain, by the way, for those of your listeners that may be thinking about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, I'm not talking about that at all. This mm-hmm. is using the technology to be able to track and trace things at every level, at every point, being tamper resistant, so very hard to hack into from a social from a cybersecurity perspective, it's great. And also being real-time access for people to look at things that are happening, changes that are made, additions that are made. Um, Many companies are using kind of closed blockchain so the public won't be able to see it. But you could, for example, give access to your internal or external auditor to look at things right away. So PWC, KPMG, all the big four are looking at blockchain for audit purposes. Governments are looking at, at using a blockchain as well. And to the extent that from a compliance perspective, it can help in keeping track of where things are happening, making sure that um, fraud is reduced um there there's a huge uh, frontier there
2: mm-hmm. so just so I understand it, let's say there's a a salmonella outbreak and it's confined to you know leafy green vegetables, and it's one distributor that's being targeted, but that distributor picks up from seven different farmers in four different states. Mm-hmm. So you'd be able to look in that document and be able to isolate which farmer right. Right. delivered the. right. Okay. And it's not on a, not on a document per se, but it's in a database. So
1: Walmart had said in the past that for it to find out where well, they use a mango experiment, it could take two weeks to find out where a tainted mango came from. Now it can be done in seconds. So for the perspective of, you know, and if you look around the world, when companies, uh, have to do uh, a recall, no farmer in that supply chain can sell their goods. So think of the small farmers, right? Because, you know, uh, and from a compliance perspective, the company has to comply with the law, but that puts all the farmers who didn't have tainted vegetables or fruit out of business or out of commission for weeks, which to small farmers could be, could be crippling.
2: Sure. Hmm. Anything else we should talk about?
1: Um, I think the last thing I want to talk about is, is the topic of, of compliance and corporate social responsibility. So I mentioned using your ring as an example of companies now have to disclose whether they're getting certain minerals, whether it's for your cell phone or your rings, from certain countries that have war-torn areas or using child slavery, et cetera. Um, Blood diamonds. Blood diamonds, conflict diamonds, same kind of thing. That's a big topic, but also the topic of the ethical issue of what do you do if you're a compliance officer and your company has a great code of conduct, but you're operating in a weak or failing state? You're making your garments in Pakistan or Bangladesh or Yemen or Sri Lanka. It's cheaper there. Um, but you know that the child labor laws aren't being followed. The environmental laws aren't being followed. Do you stay there so that the garments in the stores can be cheap? Or do you pull out and then put people out of work? Uh, if you bring the stuff back to the United States, the prices are going to skyrocket. No one's going to buy it. So companies are now looking at what's our what's the responsibility of a company in these places? Because they provide livelihoods for thousands of people, but they also know that they could never get away with paying people that in other parts of the country. They couldn't get away with the labor rules that are being violated because they know that those are com- countries with lax environmental, social, and labor laws. So companies are grappling with those kinds of things now. And sometimes they're getting sued. So the chocolate companies um, and, and Nestle, which also makes fancy feast cat food, they've been sued because they've t- touted their corporate social responsibility records Um, and consumers are saying, well, really, but you have, uh, slaves in Thailand that are catching the fish to go in the cat food or children are, are farming the the chocolate in Africa. And I wouldn't have bought your stuff if I knew you were sourcing ethically. So they're suing for unfair and deceptive trade practices. Mm -hmm. Um, they've been losing in those cases, but it's, it's the new frontier of, we want to do business in a place that's cheap. We want to comply with the law, but we know the laws aren't really followed so much in those countries. What should we do? So these are some of the ethical things. And then also investors oh, yeah. are finally saying, um, Larry Fink from BlackRock and others are saying, we expect you to make money for us. but We also care about the environmental, social and governance practices that you have. Right. So I think those are the big topics. Wasn't
2: that part of the um, Nike Colin Kaepernick mm-hmm. blowback is like, oh, aren't you great that you're doing this? But at the same time, you have some really horrendous um, trade practices in all of those things, like dealing with taking advantage of people in, in small countries, sweatshop kind of. Well, Nike
1: is interesting because Nike was actually <clears throat> the stuff that happened with Nike in the nineties was really the impetus for a lot of this CSR movement. Um, and Nike has, uh, really uh, stated that they have done a lot more, uh, as it relates to fair practices, et cetera. But every kind, con- every manufacturer If they can make sneakers in Yemen or Sri Lanka or in Bangladesh for 38 cents an hour, that's where they're going to go. Again, the question is that, is that immoral or is that smart business? Right. Okay,
2: good. Well, this is fascinating. I'm sure we'll have you back in the chair in the next season, talk about other things. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming.
0: Thanks for joining us at The Explainer. If you like the show, leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform and tell your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Ray D. Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Ugez. Today's show was brought to you by the Managing Compliance Across Borders program at Miami Law, June 26th through the 28th. The interactive executive level program is aimed at compliance, risk and audit management Council, and executives from firms and corporations around the world. For more information, visit www.law.miami.edu backslash CLE.